So last week, something kind of um, amazing happened. I posted the video of the horsehair worm on Instagram, and it kind of blew up. It collected nearly 15,000 likes as of this recording, which translated into over 7,000 downloads of the last episode. And all I can say is, wow, that is more than I ever thought possible. So if you're one of those new listeners, I just want to say welcome and thank you. Um, I hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you do, please leave a like and subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything and it helps me out a lot. And a little shameless self-promotion, if you want to support the podcast, please check out my Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. That can be found at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Um, if a one-time donation is more your style, you can do that through PayPal. My PayPal name is dispatches from the forest at gmail.com. And if even a small percentage of those new listeners are willing to throw a little support my way, that would be amazing. Okay, so enough self-promotion. Let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. So I recently had a discussion on the Nextdoor app relating to foxes, coyotes, and free-roaming cats. Now, I mentioned that free-roaming and feral cats are considered to be an invasive species, since they're a domestic species and they have no native range. This is a fact I talked about in episode 19. The author commented that my assertion seemed, quote, off-kilter, unquote, and that it was most likely coyotes, not cats, that were invasive. Now, much to my wife's dismay, that meant that I now had to educate the author on the natural history of coyotes and the difference between a native, a non-native, and an invasive species. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What are the differences between a native species, a non-native or naturalized species, and an invasive species? And what are some of the plants and animals that fall into each of these categories? Now, defining a native species is relatively easy and straightforward. A native species is defined as a species that arrived in a habitat or region naturally without the aid of humans. Being a native species doesn't mean staying in one place. It just means that humans didn't take them physically from one place and move them to another. Plants with seeds that spread by wind or other means may expand their range as their seeds get scattered farther and farther, but they're still native. Likewise, animals that naturally expand their range as they disperse would also be considered native. The thing about native species is that they have evolved in that habitat or region, and they're usually well adapted to it. Coyotes are a good example of a native animal that has naturally expanded its range. Prior to the arrival of Europeans in North America, coyotes were pretty much confined to the Great Plains and the desert southwest. Coyotes are naturally suppressed by wolves. But coyotes are also very adaptable. When settlers moving westward started reducing the number of wolves, it opened habitat for coyotes to naturally expand eastward. A lot of people think that coyotes are an invasive species in the eastern United States because that's not part of their historic range. But the reality is that they were able to expand naturally as habitat became available. 
While humans played a role in that expansion by eliminating wolves, they didn't physically transport coyotes east. Now, on a side note, the person who told me that my cats are an invasive species assertion was off-kilter casually presented their own assertion that coyotes have, and I quote, infiltrated our part of the country with the help of our government to help cut down the deer population so the insurance companies don't have to pay out, unquote. There is so much wrong there. To learn more about coyotes and why this person is so wrong, go back and listen to episode four. Now, just because a species is not native doesn't necessarily mean that it's invasive. There are, in the United States, about 30,000 introduced species, including many of our livestock and food crops. An invasive species is one that is both not native to a particular region or habitat, but also has an adverse impact on the habitat or region where it's introduced. The federal definition of an invasive species is, quote, an alien species whose introduction does or is likely to cause economic or environmental harm or harm to human health, unquote. Only a small number of introduced species become invasive, but those that do can have a significant impact. Many non-native species have become what we call naturalized, which basically means that they've been here for a long time, and they've generally had only a minor impact on the ecosystem into which they were introduced. Although that said, in many cases there's some debate about whether that impact is minor or not, so there's often a fine line between naturalized and invasive. But what are some of the species that are generally considered to be naturalized? Well, the first one that comes to mind is the ring-necked pheasant. Most people don't realize that pheasants aren't native to the United States. Ring-necked pheasants are commonly found in agricultural areas mixed with areas of taller vegetation, which they use for cover. They forage on the ground in fields where they eat waste grain, seeds, and insects. They generally walk or run and only occasionally resort to flying, usually when they're disturbed at close range by predators or humans. Native to parts of Europe and Asia, ring-necked pheasants have been extensively introduced around the world, primarily as a game bird, since ancient times. They were introduced into Britain around the year 1059, so it's no surprise that they were eventually brought to North America by European settlers in 1773. Since then, they've become well-established throughout much of the Rocky Mountain states, the Midwest, and the Plains states, in addition to Canada and Mexico. Pheasant hunting is popular in the United States, and we have groups like Pheasants Forever, which formed in 1982 and has, according to their website, created or enhanced wildlife habitat on more than 15.8 million acres across the U.S. and parts of Canada. Since they've been here for almost 250 years, pheasants have generally been accepted as a naturalized species. For the most part, pheasants have been able to naturalize without too many negative impacts on other species, but that doesn't mean they have no negative impacts. They have the potential to introduce diseases to native birds, diseases that the pheasant tolerates well, but other birds may not. They're known to harass and even kill other species, particularly prairie chickens, which are an endangered species. Pheasants compete with other birds for resources, which can lead to decreased numbers of quail and partridges native species with similar habitat and food requirements. Pheasants also engage in what's called brood parasitism, laying their eggs in the nest of other species. The impact of brood parasitism can include abandonment of nests with a high proportion of foreign eggs, lower hatching rates, and fewer eggs laid by the host bird. 
Pheasant eggs also have a shorter incubation time than many of the species they parasitize, which can lead to the host mother abandoning her own eggs after the pheasants hatch, thinking that the remaining eggs are not viable. Now, another species that's been naturalized is one I talked about in episode 28, honeybees. In case you missed that episode, let's do a quick review. No true honeybees are native to North America. Domesticated honeybees were brought to North America in the 1600s by colonists. These honeybees, quote, escaped into the wild, and I mean, saying escaped implies that they were contained at some point, which obviously they weren't. But anyhow, that makes wild honeybees feral, which I still find funny. They rapidly spread westward across the Great Plains. Honeybees were brought to Utah by the Mormons in the 1840s and to California by ship in the 1850s. Now, since they've been present in North America for over 400 years, it's easy to say that honeybees are now naturalized. Awareness campaigns to save the bees generally focus on honeybees, the non-native bee, and beekeeping has become a popular hobby in the United States. But honeybees do impact native bee species. High densities of honeybee colonies increase competition between native pollinators for forage, putting even more pressure on the native bee species that are in decline. Studies have shown that introducing honeybees reduces the connectedness of plant pollinator networks and causes indicators of ecosystem resilience to decline. Some plant species in these studies displayed a higher yield, but fruits sampled closest to the beehives contained only aborted seeds. And these disruptions didn't take a long time to start appearing. They were measurable within days of the introduction of the honeybee hive. Unfortunately, many people take up beekeeping thinking they're doing something positive when they may in fact be reducing biodiversity and putting native bees at risk of extinction. Other naturalized species are things like dandelions and chicory. It's generally thought that these were brought over with the first colonists aboard the Mayflower for their supposed medicinal qualities and they're now common sites in yards and fields and roadsides. Now, like I mentioned earlier, one of the main differences between a naturalized species and an invasive species usually has to do with environmental impact. Usually when something is labeled as an invasive species, it means that the species in question is causing harm to the environment, outcompeting native species for resources such as food or habitat, or damaging native species in some other ways. Here in the United States, the economic impact of invasives on agriculture is estimated to be between $123 and $137 billion per year, and that doesn't even take into account damage to natural ecosystems. Now, in their native habitats, species are generally kept in check either by natural predators or because their prey or host species have evolved alongside them to have some sort of resistance. It's only when they're introduced into a habitat where natural predators or resistance is lacking that they become problematic. The emerald ash borer is a great example. Ash trees in their native range are resistant to this beetle, but North American ash tree species are lacking this resistance. Sure, woodpeckers and other insect-eating birds can and do eat the emerald ash borer, but this invasive beetle is still a grave threat to our native ash trees. Now, some invasive species introductions are not accidental. Like the pheasant, these species were deliberately released into the wild without considering the potential consequences. An example of this is the nutria. Nutria are semi-aquatic rodents, smaller than a beaver, but kind of like a muskrat on steroids. Nutria grow to be an average of between 12 and 22 pounds. 
They're native of South America, and they were originally brought to California in 1899 and Louisiana in the 1930s to be raised for their fur, a substitute for beaver. Now, some nutria were released into the wild when the Great Depression caused a downturn in the fur industry. Hurricanes in the 1940s allowed many more to escape, and in 1945, E.L. McElhenney, the heir to the Tabasco sauce empire, released his entire stock on Avery Island in an attempt to start a fur industry in Louisiana. Nutria can have up to 13 young at a time and are capable of having two litters per year, so it didn't take long for nutria to become a significant pest and do a lot of ecological damage. They destroy vegetation, marches, and irrigation systems. They're known to chew through man-made items, including tires and wooden house paneling. Nutria consume about 25% of their body weight daily, and not only do they eat the above-ground portion of plants, they often dig down to consume roots, tubers, and rhizomes. This can lead to erosion along riverbanks. Other problems caused by nutria include displacement of native species and the transmission of a variety of parasites and diseases that can infect humans and other animals. European starlings were intentionally released by several groups called acclimatization societies. Believe it or not, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, these groups encouraged the introduction of non-native species in various places around the world in the hope that they would acclimatize and adapt to their new environments. Records from these societies mention starlings being introduced in Cincinnati, Quebec, and New York in the 1870s, and New York Central Park in 1890. There's some speculation that the man responsible for the Central Park starling release was attempting to introduce every bird species mentioned in the works of William Shakespeare, but it's not known if that's actually true or not. While they're considered beneficial in their native habitat because they eat many agricultural pests, introduced starlings are often considered pests themselves. They form large flocks and tend to be aggressive, allowing them to outcompete native birds for food and habitat, like cavities for nesting. Through sheer numbers, they can damage fruit crops, and they'll dig up seeds and newly sprouted plants. Agricultural damage from starlings in the United States is estimated to be $800 million per year. They're also known to congregate at feed and water troughs for livestock, both eating the feed and contaminating the food and water with their droppings. They're a known vector for histoplasmosis, a fungus that can infect both human and livestock. Large flock sizes are also a hazard for aircraft. In 1960, 62 people died when a plane crashed after flying into a flock of starlings in Massachusetts. But many introductions of invasive species happen completely by accident, like when a species escapes into the wild. This can happen when a species is accidentally transported to a novel location, like in the case of the brown tree snake. Sometime between World War II and 1952, Brown tree snakes were accidentally transported from their native range in the South Pacific to the island of Guam, perhaps as a stowaway in ship cargo or by crawling into the landing gear of Guam-bound aircraft. Abundant prey and an absence of natural predators allowed brown tree snakes to reach unprecedented numbers on the island. These snakes caused the extirpation of most of the native forest vertebrate species. Since Guam is a major transportation hub in the Pacific, there's a high risk of these snakes being accidentally transported to other Pacific islands as passive stowaways. 
Hawaii is particularly at risk because of direct flights from Guam and Hawaii's high number of endemic species that are already at risk. To minimize this threat, trained dogs are used to search, locate, and remove brown tree snakes before outbound military and commercial cargo and transportation vessels leave Guam. Accidental introduction is often the case with plants that are cultivated as ornamentals. People plant them because they look nice, but then they spread into natural areas and begin to cause problems. Take, for example, Tree of Heaven. First introduced into Philadelphia in the late 1700s, Tree of Heaven is a fast-growing ornamental shade tree with the ability to grow in a wide range of conditions, tolerating poor soils and air quality. It was widely planted from New York to Washington, D.C., and brought to the West Coast in the 1850s. But Tree of Heaven stinks, both figuratively and literally. By the early 1900s, the tree began losing popularity because of its weedy nature, prolific root sprouting, and foul odor. Tree of Heaven is dioecious, meaning there are male trees and female trees, and it typically grows in dense colonies. All trees in a single colony are the same sex. Female trees are prolific seeders with the potential to produce more than 300,000 seeds annually. Not only that, but established trees continually spread by sending up root suckers that can emerge as much as 50 feet away from the parent tree. A cut or injured tree can produce dozens of stump and root sprouts. Sprouts as young as two years are capable of producing seeds. Tree of Heaven also produces chemicals in its leaves, roots, and bark that can limit or prevent the establishment of other plants. Its extensive root system and re-sprouting ability makes it difficult to control. Usually a targeted herbicide is required along with cutting. Now some invasive species might surprise you. Bullfrogs, for instance. Bullfrogs are native to the southeastern United States, but are considered an invasive species in many other parts of the country, including California and the Midwest. Bullfrogs became established outside their native range when fur traders and gold miners brought them along as a food source and they escaped into the wild. Bullfrogs, thanks in part to their size, are very adaptable and tend to outcompete native amphibians. But there's another invasive species that's been in the news quite a bit recently, the spotted lanternfly, an invasive insect that can devastate crops of apples, peaches, and grapes. Let me repeat that so you can appreciate the implications. They can devastate crops of apples, peaches, and grapes. No apples means no apple pie, no apple cider. And if that doesn't scare you, maybe this will. No grapes means no wine. Now, granted, maybe it's not that dire. We can protect these crops with pesticide applications, but there's economic, environmental, and health impacts to that approach. It was first found in the United States in Pennsylvania in 2014, but by last year it had been confirmed in at least parts of 11 other states. In Pennsylvania alone, Penn State University estimated the damage from the spotted lanternfly to be $99.1 million in agricultural losses and $236.3 million to the forest industry annually. Models of the lanternfly spread have projected an annual loss of $554 million, with the additional loss of nearly 5,000 jobs if it continues to spread through Pennsylvania. Again, in its native range, the spotted lanternfly is kept in check by a species of parasitic wasp. Also, while spotted lanternfly can complete its life cycle on a variety of trees, it appears to only thrive if a certain tree from its native range is present. 
And that tree happens to be tree of heaven. So reducing or eliminating tree of heaven has the additional benefit of making spotted lanternfly at least a little easier to control. Hopefully, with relatively early intervention and aggressive control methods, we can prevent spotted lanternfly from becoming established. I mean, come on, think about the wine. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Again, thank you for listening. Remember to leave us a like and subscribe. And just a reminder that if you want to support future episodes of the podcast, please consider becoming a patron. Get all the details at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest or drop a donation on PayPal. Have a message for me? Leave a comment or send an email to dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.